The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well, very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. It hits home a little bit more for me because we buried, uh, uh, indirectly buried a 17-month-old baby yesterday. Those days were in God's plan. Those, those 17 months were part of God's plan beyond our understanding. And then a few months ago, I, we buried my dad after 97 years. That was a lot of months. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Some seems natural, some unnatural. But God's in control of every single day. And that's why we gather and worship. We can do nothing else. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With all our heart and soul and mind and strength, Lord, we, we worship you this day. We praise you for who you are. For your sovereign work in each of our lives. We, we praise you as the one who creates life. Life we celebrate. Life that <clears throat> you promise to your children can be abundant. We thank you for letting us be a part of this uh, pregnancy ministry. And we pray, Lord, that you'd bless these gifts so that the Low Country Pregnancy Center might serve more and more families. God bless their work. And use us to do that. We praise you and thank you for the abundance of children here in our own church, in our, our fellowship. They keep on coming. Praise you, Lord. Give us an urgency to raise them up in the truth of your word. Raise them up with fear and trembling the world that they go out to. Raising them up to learn to trust you. We thank you too today for the mothers in our lives, for their example, for their prayers, for their love, their secret sacrifices. 
We thank you for the mothers and grandmothers who've gone before us all. Their ongoing influence in our lives. Lord, we pray for those today who will never give birth. And if sadness is a part of their experience, we pray that you'd give them peace. Lord, we pray for those in our midst today who've aborted innocent lives. Give them grace. Meet their needs and care for them. We pray for adoptive mothers and foster mothers and pray that today you'd remind them of the gift that you've given them. Remind them of that every day. Bless them as they nurture their children. We bless you and praise you for faithful mothers, Lord, who teach their children that they belong to you and not to them. And even as we celebrate mothers this morning, our focus is you. We've gathered because of who you are. We are reminded that you are the one who knits us together. You are the one who sustains us. You are the the one who provides for us. You're the one who plans our days. May we use each day for your glory. Thank you for your word, the truth of your word. We pray that Pastor Greg might be empowered to deliver your word straight to our hearts. Change us, O Lord by your power, and by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Peter's already begun this in the first nine, well, first nine and a half verses of chapter 2, and he picks up his assault in verse uh, 10, the second half, saying this, saying, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these... Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, they will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. 
after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's the word of the Lord. Read an interesting article this week. It was entitled, How Inkjet Printers Are Changing the Art of Counterfeit Money. It's interesting. The article, reported by Reuters, simply states this. Nearly 60% of the fake $88.7 million recouped last year was created using inkjet or laser printers. Did you know that in your house you had all the things you need to make fake money? Pastor Frank is celebrating. The U.S. government recouped more than $88 million in counterfeit currency last year, and more than half of it was made on regular old inkjet or laser printers. According to Bloomberg, which tells the story of a woman who pleaded guilty to counterfeiting up to $20,000 in fake bills over a two-year period. She took $5 bills, soaked them in a degreaser, scrubbed off the ink with a toothbrush, dried them with a hairdryer, and then reprinted them as 50 and $100 bills on a Hewlett-Packard printer. Who would have thought of that? I mean, you've got to give her credit for effort, right? $5 bills and turns them into 50s or 100s. Statistics highlight the, growing, the growth of this problem. In 1995, less than 1% of fake bills were produced on digital printers. In the last fiscal year, nearly 60% was created using inkjet or laser printers, the Secret Service says. Isn't that fascinating? Just make fake money in your own home. But what's fascinating is that apparently you can do it very well. And what makes counterfeit money effective is that it looks precisely like the real thing. I'm going to show you a picture on the screen of two bills. See if you can figure out which one is the counterfeit and which one is the real one. Can you see? Take a look. One's counterfeit, one's real. All right, how many of you think the top one is the real one? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you think the bottom one is the real one? All right, let's see which one's real. Oh, see, most of you are right. Very good. Very good. Very good. There's a few of you that could use a little work on your senses of perception. No, I'm just kidding. I couldn't tell the difference myself. They look the same to me. What makes a counterfeit remarkably effective is that it looks exactly like the real thing. So that a, a person who's taking that money at a register would, would take it and would see it, and it would look just like any other money, and they'd put it in the drawer, and they'd keep it assuming nothing is out of the ordinary. What makes counterfeit money particularly effective is that it looks just like the real thing to the casual observer. 
And that is exactly the main point to which Peter is pointing in this text when he speaks about the false prophets, the counterfeit prophets. The point he is going to make to us here is what makes a counterfeit prophet a false teacher particularly effective is that they manage to pull off their deception while all the while looking exactly like the real thing to the casual observer. They manage to, to teach and to preach and to, and to do their business without being easily spotted. They look like the real thing. They sound like the real thing. They do things that look like what a true minister would do. They talk the, the language of a genuine prophet, a genuine teacher. Chuck Swindoll says, they use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. They use the words we use, but they mean altogether different things by it. And this is what makes their deception so destructive. They manage to pull it off all the while looking to the casual observer like the real thing. That was a problem in Peter's day. By the way, it's a problem in our day. Everywhere there's been God's people, everywhere there's been in the history of the world, God's prophets, God's true teachers, there have always been the counterfeit, the fake, the fraudulent, the charlatan. Always. Satan always has his cheap, phony imitation of the real thing masquerading around at the same time. Preying on people who will fall for the deception. But at the end of the day, the false prophet is nothing but a cheap imitation. Peter's going to tell us it's just a cheap imitation of the real thing. Utterly useless, utterly worthless. One of those bills in that picture was worth something, and the other was worth nothing. But they looked on the surface to have the same value. And that is what chapter 2 is all about in 2 Peter. It is what is burning in the heart of this man Peter as he writes to his beloved friends. He is terribly concerned that they are going to be prey, they are going to fall prey to these false teachers and false prophets and be destroyed, as we'll see as we work our way through the text. And it's important to note, as he talks about false teachers and false prophets, it's important to note that the danger to which Peter is speaking is a danger that comes from within the church, not from without it. It's a danger that rises up on the inside of the Christian church. It's not, an, it's not an assault from the outside. It's a danger that rises from the inside. These false teachers, these false prophets, they, they rise up within the Christian church. And they gain prominence and they gain a following. And sooner or later, what they do is they lead those who follow them along with their own selves to their own destruction. But they rise up within the church. They prey on God's people. They impress God's people with their knowledge. They dazzle them with their skills. They impress them with their teaching. They're impressive. They're bold. They're attractive. They're seductive. But at the end of the day, Peter says, they destroy. They don't build. They destroy. As we work our way through this text, I'm going to tell you, it is not a pleasant text. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. It is not a pleasant text. Um, I, I suspect you picked that up as we read through it. This is not the text that you hang on your, you know, that you frame in a pretty frame and put on the wall in your office. What Peter does here is he unleashes an all-out assault on false prophets and he minces no words. I mean, he pulls out both cannons and just fires away. With all the vocabulary that he can muster, he fires at these guys. He uses vivid and graphic language. He pulls no punches. 
And he leaves nothing to the imagination. In fact, it's a bit hard to read. It's a bit hard to work our way through and to come to terms with, particularly in a day like our day. When I say that, I mean a day like our day where relativism is really the prevailing thought and the prevailing, prevailing philosophy of the culture, the general culture around us. Relativism being the idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth, that there is no such thing as the true and the false. Everything is just sort of relative. The best we can say, the culture around us would say, is that what we believe is true for us. That's the best anyone should be able to say. And whatever is true to me is true to me, and it's true for me. But whatever is true to you and true for you is true to you and true for you. And who's to judge between what I think is true and what you think is true? Who's to judge between what I believe and what you believe? Nobody can say these things. There's no such thing, in fact, as some overarching absolute truth to which everyone must submit. And so in, in that kind of a culture, to go around saying you know the truth is seen as the absolute height of arrogance. It's seen as the height of absolute intolerance. To say that somebody else's beliefs would be wrong in comparison to the truth is like the ultimate sort of kind of intolerance that you could have today. Be called arrogant and boastful and backward and intolerant. That's just what's going on in the culture. And the American Christian church is not immune to such philosophy. In fact, that very kind of philosophy has begun to creep into the, the thinking and the minds and the mindset of the Christian community within that culture. And so as a result, we're very reticent to call out false teachers. We're very hesitant to say anything about someone else like that because we don't want to be harsh and we don't want to be judgmental and we don't want to be seen as arrogant or know-it-alls or judgmental. And so we look at the, the false teachers of the world, particularly the ones that we see as particularly harmless because they offer sort of mediocre a pea soup sort of basic stuff that doesn't on the surface seem harmful to anybody else. And so we look at those folks and we say, well, you know, yeah, they're false. And yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. And yeah, their theology is a mess. And yeah, they get it all wrong. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, at least they're talking about Jesus. At the end of the day, at least they're doing some Christian stuff. And isn't that better than nothing at all? Peter's going to say at the end of this, no. In fact, it's worse than nothing at all. After all, they say some good things. They read from the Bible. Aren't they harmless? See, we don't want to be controversial. We don't want to be embroiled in conflict. J.C. Ryle, 19th century Anglican bishop, uh, who is a, just a, a wonderful wordsmith and very insightful man, said this. He said, controversy in religion is a hateful thing. It's hard enough to fight the devil, the world, and the flesh without private differences in our own camp. But there is one thing which is worse than controversy, and that is false doctrine tolerated, allowed, and permitted without protest. Three things there are which men never ought to trifle with. A little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. He's right. He goes on to say in a, a larger tract that he wrote and called Warning to the Churches, if we have time this morning, I'll read you some excerpt from that at the end. He goes on to say the most, the most effective kind of poison is the kind of poison that is mixed in in small quantities with otherwise wholesome food. 
That's the most effective way to kill somebody, is to take the good stuff and just poison it with a little bit of the bad over time. You can kill somebody that way. And so Peter's argument is, no, false prophets are never harmless. No matter how innocent they seem on the surface. No matter how many good things they otherwise do. There are very, very few Christian pastors or people in general today who will talk like Peter talks in this text. Very few. And if you pay close attention, I suspect that you'll find his approach is a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit uncomfortable when we work through it. He comes off at times as angry and aggressive and certain and judgmental and clear. Everything that our culture would hate, he comes off as. And we might find in our, in our minds the question, well, what's, what's this guy so worked up about? What's got Peter all up in a tizzy? I mean, what's the big deal? What's he so ticked off about? Why does he spend a whole chapter in a very short letter saying this kind of stuff? Why doesn't he just go about his ministry and let God deal with him? Why doesn't he just do that? Why doesn't he just focus on the good stuff and and, and pray for him? Why do this? Why is he so worked up? Well, there's an answer to that question. And it comes out in the text. The answer is... That Peter knows that despite their outward appearance, these men are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they have one goal and one end, and that is to destroy people. This is not a leap for us if you're a parent. It's Mother's Day. Think with me, moms and dads, about your little, your precious little girl. Imagine her as a young, as a young lady, say 14, 15 years old. And imagine you find out that there is some grown man that is actively enticing her to follow after him, undercutting all the things that you've taught her in her life, actively trying to lure her away into promiscuity and to all the promises that he's making to her after you've invested 15 years of your life trying to teach her what is right and what is wrong and how to live a godly life. Imagine for me with me for just a moment. What level of of righteous anger and indignation would arise up inside your heart if you knew that was going on? That there was some man luring your little daughter away and that his goal was to use her and abuse her and destroy her? Is there any level of anger that wouldn't rise up on your... is 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 there any limit to what you would do to shut that down and to stop it before she was destroyed? There isn't. You'd say anything. You'd do anything that you had to do to shut it down. You see, Peter is a pastor. And when he looks out on these believers to whom he writes, they are his beloved children in the faith. And what he sees are false teachers who are seducing them away, and they're seducing them away with the goal of absolutely destroying them. And so Peter understands this is not something to play around with. And so he pulls out all of his verbal weapons, and he goes at them to shut them down. That's what's going on in this text. That's why Peter's so worked up. Let me just make another note. As we work through this this morning and next week, I have, I've chosen at times to name some names of people that I think are false prophets today that fit the description. For some of you, that might be a bit uncomfortable, and maybe you won't agree with my assessment, and that's okay as well. And you might even say to me, well, Pastor, Peter doesn't name anybody by name. Why would you go about doing such a thing? 
Well, that's a fair question, and I'm glad you asked it. Um, I have two answers to that question. Number one, Peter is writing a particular letter to a particular audience. He knows his audience, and they know him. And there is no question in the minds of the one who's writing or the ones to whom the ones who will be reading it exactly who Peter is talking about. There is no question. There is no anonymity in this letter. It seems like it, perhaps, from the distance of many years. But in the day in which Peter wrote it, in the day in which those people read it, it was clear to everybody exactly who he was talking about. There was no need for Peter to name them because everybody knew exactly who he was talking about. No need to even speak their names. Secondly, we understand that Peter's the human author, but behind Peter stands the Holy Spirit of God who is breathing Holy Scripture through this man, recording what Peter writes as a letter to be part of Holy Scripture for generations and generations and generations of believers to come. And so he inspires him to record this in such a way that it can be applicable to every generation and succeeding generations by way of principle and portrait, if you will. So Peter paints, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a more general portrait that can be applied by people of every generation to the particular false prophets of their day. And so I just mentioned that to you as we work our way through. I will do that. And let me just say, just so you don't misunderstand, there is not one ounce of pleasure I get from calling somebody else's name in a negative way in a sermon or any way, or in any conversation. It does nothing for me, absolutely nothing for me personally. It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make me feel better. It doesn't make me feel like I'm wonderful because they're awful. That's not the point. The point is we have to know how to identify what's false. And so often it is incredibly packaged in what looks like what's real, that we have to know how to see it. And it's hard to know how to see it in general. So that's at least my mindset working through this week and next. The way we're going to approach this text is Peter's going to show us really two categories of things. He's going to show us the character of false prophets, and then he's going to show us the condition of false prophets. Now, Peter is going to intersperse the two throughout the text. The way we're going to take it is we're going to take them one at a time. So this morning, we'll start sort of tracking as Peter lays out for us the character of false prophets, what false prophets are like. He's going to lay out their character by giving us some of their attitudes and by giving us some of their actions, some of the the things that they do that reveal their character and some of the motivations of their heart, the attitudes of their heart. And we'll just make a running list of these things as we go. Uh, One more note. As we work our way through this list that Peter gives us, it's important to note that not every false prophet displays every one of these characteristics. Not every false prophet displays every one of these characteristics. But all false prophets display some of these characteristics. And some false prophets do display all of them. Um, But the characteristics are a list that are helpful to just get in our minds as we evaluate what's going on around us. The first one he gives us is this. False prophets are arrogant and disrespectful. Arrogant and disrespectful. Verses 10b and 11. The verse break, for some reason, is odd here. The actual sentence begins, a new sentence begins in the middle of verse 10. That's why we're starting in the middle of that sentence. It doesn't always come off that way in the English translation. But Peter writes, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. 
Now, Peter uses sort of a bizarre way of coming at this that, um, again, would have been something that his initial hearers or his initial readers would have understood because it comes out of a, a sort of common Jewish uh, tradition at the day. We are separated from that by many, many years, and so it's somewhat obscure to us. Without getting us deep in the weeds here, I'm going to try and make sense of what Peter's trying to make because it's actually a very simple point. He's trying to make the point that false teachers, false prophets, are at heart arrogant, disrespectful people. That's what they are. Now, arrogant pride is perhaps one of the worst sins that the, the, the sort of comes out of the Scriptures. It was the hallmark of Satan. It's what got him kicked out of heaven, according to the Old Testament. It is an arrogant sort of pride that rose up in the hearts of Adam and Eve. They got them thrown out of the garden. And arrogant pride is a battle, really, for every believer down throughout the ages. But here in these false prophets, this arrogant pride is on steroids. I mean, these people are out of their minds arrogant and disrespectful. They have an overly exalted view of themselves, and they have a diminished view of everybody else. Have you ever met somebody who displays that sort of characteristic? They think awfully highly of themselves and not so highly of everybody else. And when you're around them, you know immediately that they think really highly of themselves. You don't even have to ask. They just tell you. You know those folks? There's a guy that I navigate with um, in the military, and uh, he is, in fact, um, uh, a minister. And this this fellow, every time I see him, I mean, the conversation doesn't go five minutes before you're hearing something about how wonderful he is. And it's, and it's fascinating, in fact, because you never have to ask. It just, he'll tell you. He'll just tell you. He'll tell you the needed, the coolest thing he's just got, got, uh, got, gotten? Yeah, whatever the word is. He'll just tell you the neatest promotion he's just had, how somebody's told him how wonderful he is. The story, it's never direct. It's always roundabout. But at the end of the day, it's always a way of letting you know how wonderful he is. And by contrast, how unwonderful you are. I imagine those people exist in your world. Uh, Arrogant. An arrogance, a pridefulness that's just sort of on display. Well, that's one of the characteristics that Peter says these false prophets display. The word translated bold here is a word that literally means darers or reckless ones. What's translated willful means sort of self-willed. Determined to have their own way or bust. The words together sort of overlap and they, they carry the meaning of boldly arrogant or arrogant audacity. That's what you, he would use to describe these people. Tom Schreiner says the false teachers were blessed with an extraordinary confidence. But unfortunately, this confidence was not leavened by wisdom or humility. It's an ornate way of saying they were pumped up prideful men who lacked utterly humility. Now, Peter goes about explaining this by giving an illustration of one of the things that they do that just seems so odd to us and hard to translate and hard to make sense of. He says they blatantly blaspheme glorious ones with no fear. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Translators, I mean, not translators, commentators are kind of across the board on what Peter's talking about here. You can read about that on your own. The explanation that seems to make the most sense from the text uh, to me is that these glorious ones, what's translated glorious ones here, is a reference to fallen angels or demons. It's sort of contrasted with the word he uses later in the same verse, angels. And so it seems to me that he's calling fallen angels here glorious ones, and this other word for angels, translated angels, referencing the positive angels or the, the unfallen angels, if you will. 
We'll look back to Jude 8 and 9 in just a moment to sort of see this because the same thing appears there. Actually, let's do that now. Jude uh, 8 and 9. There's only one chapter in Jude, so if anybody references Jude and you hear Jude 8 and 9, it's just the only 8 and 9 in Jude. But there Jude reports, excuse me, there in Jude it's reported, speaking of false teachers again, they blaspheme the glorious ones, but when the archangel Michael, okay, pause right there. You see there's this glorious ones in contrast to Michael, this archangel. When, Mark, when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So we see here some similar language, just blaspheme the glorious ones, contrasted with some other angel here, Michael. And he seems to be saying that there was this event. Now, by the way, this, this account in Jude, there is no other record of this in the Scriptures anywhere, about an incident where the archangel Michael was contending with the devil over the body of Moses. This is unique to this passage. We don't know anything else about it other than what's recorded right here. And so I can't shine any light on that because there is no more biblical light on it other than what Jude says here, or what's said in Jude here, excuse me. But what we do know from the text is at least this much. That Michael, the archangel, was disputing with Satan. And even though he was an archangel, and even though Satan was Satan, Michael would not presume to do what? Pronounce a judgment against Satan. Because he saw that as as being only the prerogative of one being. And who is that? The Lord. Yeah. Even though it's Satan. It's not like there's a question about his character, right? It's not like he's even questionable who he is or what he's about. But even in spite of the fact that it's clearly obvious who he is, he wouldn't presume to assume an exalted position that doesn't belong to him. Judgment belongs to whom? The Lord. The Lord. So the point here that that is being made in Jude is the same point that Peter is making, and that is this. That even, even the good angels, even the angels who have more power than both men and fallen angels, don't presume to blaspheme fallen angels, including Satan himself. They understand that that's not their role, that that is a role for God, and to do such a thing would be to exalt themselves to the level of God. So what Peter is saying here is these false prophets, they are arrogant disrespectful men who have no problem exalting themselves to a place that even angels wouldn't dare to do. That's how blasphemous they are. That's how arrogant they are. Even though angels that that are, are made unlike man, that have power beyond the powers of men, wouldn't dare to do. But these men, not only do they do it, did you see what Peter said? They don't even tremble about it. There's no fear. They have no fear. Their arrogance is such that they have no fear of any potential consequences of exalting themselves to the place of God himself. That's arrogance, right? That's pretty arrogant. That's pretty bold. That's pretty brash. They have no respect, no fear. Just arrogant pride. So the image that Peter is painting here is this. They're cocky, defiant, indulgent, out-of-control leaders who have no respect for authority, even the authority of God. They don't tremble. By the way, we don't have time to chase this this morning, even though I want to. But if you, if you track through Scripture, whenever angels appear to men, 
you'll find that every time angels appear to men and they're recognizable as angels because they want to be recognized as who they are, there's one consistent response that human beings have in their presence. Do you know what it is? Sheer terror. Absolute fear. Not these guys. They don't fear angels. They don't fear anything. They see themselves as exalted and everybody else is below. They have no problem blaspheming whatever way they want to. You know, in contrast to this, the mark of a true, of a true leader, of a true man of God, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. It's humility and selflessness, isn't it? Listen to what Paul writes. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, or he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The true man of God, the true man of God, is perfectly content to exalt Christ and humble himself. He's thrilled to death when people hear him and see him and walk away saying, Man, Jesus Christ is the best. He's not about making himself out to be what he's not. That is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone ever had the right to exalt himself among men, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. But he humbled himself, Peter says. Excuse me, Paul says. Even to the point of stretching out his arms on a cross, allowing nails to be driven in his wrists and his feet. That's a humility and a selflessness that is utterly lacking in the false prophets because they're full of arrogant pride warning sign number one you're dealing with a false prophet they use arrogant pride they exalt themselves not Christ they point to their own wisdom their own ideas not the scriptures when you begin to see that coming out of someone who's proposing to be your teacher the red sirens need to be going off in your head immediately Immediately. So they're arrogant. What's the second thing? The second thing Peter says, they're driven by passions, not the truth. Verse 12. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Now, this is going to be upsetting to some of you. Let me just say outright. I'm an animal lover. I love dogs. Cats not so much. Dogs I really like. I've always had dogs most of my life, and they're always spoiled, rotten. Um, I have a dog right now. Her name is Ariel. She can drive me nuts at times, but she is awesome. She's the best thing. She's a great friend, a great companion. I love having her around the house. She does tricks sometimes when she feels like it. But more than anything, she's just nice, and she's always happy to see me. It doesn't matter when or where. She just always is happy to see me. And nobody else is always happy to see me. But she is always happy to see me. I love that about her. She's friendly. She's nice. She's got a sweet personality. She likes to play. But listen, I am under no illusion that she is anything other than an animal. She is an animal. She is not a person. 
Now, in our culture, there are a lot of people who seem to confuse that. Animals are not rational beings. We got that, right? They're, they're not rational beings. They, they, don't, they don't carry on rational thought like people do. You get that, right? I love Ariel. But Ariel doesn't pull up to the breakfast table and discuss her day with us. It doesn't go like that in my house. Because Ariel is utterly incapable of discussing her day. She's utterly incapable of rational thought and rational conversation for sure. She's motivated mainly by two things. Fun and food. That's it. Fun and food. I can get her to do just about anything if she thinks it's fun and if I have food. That's, that's how it works. That's what motivates. She, she's a creature of instinct. She's a creature of instinct. She does what comes natural, what is instinctive to her. She follows her natural instincts and she follows after the things that she wants. That she's hardwired to do that. Now, she can be trained. She can be trained by, by cause and effect over a repetitive amount of time. In other words, uh, she can learn, hey, if when he says that word sit, I put my butt on the floor, he'll give me a treat. So that whenever I say the word, her butt hits the floor and she gets a treat. She can learn that. She understands that. But that's training by cause and effect. That is not rational thought. She can be trained to do all sorts of things. But she's not rational. Now, don't tell that poor lady who's walking around the mall with her chihuahua all dressed up in her purse that that's just an animal because she clearly thinks that it's a person. We don't need to hurt her feelings or have her potentially hurt us. But that's unique sort of to modern culture. For most of human history, animals have been viewed primarily as the source of one thing. You understand this, right? Food. Food. Now, I'm not saying go home and eat your animal. I'm just saying that that historically has been what, how animals have been viewed as food for other animals or as food for people to be hunted and killed and eaten for sustenance so that people could survive. Now, we live in much more refined times and we don't have to do that. We can go to Bilo and buy our food, right? We don't have to do that. But you understand in Peter's culture, it's not our culture. And so when he says these false prophets... What he says about them is they're like irrational animals. They're, they're irrational animals. They're creatures of instinct. That is to say that they are purely driven by their passions, not by rational thought. They are not people of reason. They are people of passions. They are not people who, who do what they do because they're, they're rationally thinking. They are people who are driven by their, their animal instincts. They're driven in a no more complicated sense than my dog is driven to get her food. They do what they do to get what they want. They're irrational animals. They're driven by instincts. They operate on the basis of feelings and emotions and appetites, but not reason. Now, they don't appear that way. And they would never regard themselves that way. They think of themselves as intelligent and intellectual and articulate They have things to say, which they think are wise and intelligent and should be listened to and believed. But at the end of the day, they're creatures of instinct. And this is a pretty bold thing to say. Because Peter says they're good for one thing, to be killed. I mean, do you get more direct than that? To be killed like the animals that they are. 
They're not reasonable. They're not rational. Their teaching does not reflect rational truth. It's driven to fulfill the most base human appetites. That's what drives them. So warning sign number two, you're dealing with a false prophet. It's a person that's driven by passions and instincts, not by reason and truth. Whenever I hear somebody stand up and preach or teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they never open this book, and they never teach anything out of it, they're not interested in truth. The little red lights start going off in my head. Something's wrong. Something's out of kilter. This person is teaching out of a platform of something within them, not something from here. That's a problem. And my question marks begin to immediately go off. What is their motivation? What are they after? Third, they're blasphemous and ignorant, he says. Verse 12, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, the second part of the verse, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant. Now, that's a pretty simple one to to lay out for us, isn't it? They boldly proclaim things that they know nothing about. They boldly declare stuff about which they are completely and utterly ignorant. They make big boasts, but they have no idea what they're talking about. They, they stand on a platform and they teach with absolute certainty doctrines that they know nothing about. And you begin to scratch the surface and you begin to compare what they boldly proclaim with what's actually written. You find out that they're clueless and they don't know what they're talking about. They're blasphemous. And they're ignorant. As if arrogance isn't bad enough and ignorance isn't bad enough. But when you put the two together, you have a deadly combination when somebody is both arrogant and ignorant. It's a difficult person to deal with. But these guys claim to know the truth. They claim to teach the truth. But the reality is they don't know the truth. What they know is falsehood. They think they know it, but they don't know it. They're self-deceived. And they present themselves as true teachers But in reality, Peter says they're just dumb as animals. What do these people do? Well, they they ridicule divine truth. They substitute ignorant lies in its place. They make fun of traditional, historic, biblical truth. And they love to introduce all sorts of novel doctrines into the population. They love to come out with all sorts of new things. They love to come up with all sorts of new sorts of, of, of beliefs. And interpretations to make the people who sit and listen to him go, oh, wow, I never knew that before. I, my, my preacher, when I was growing up, taught that passion. He never said anything about that. This guy's brilliant. When in reality, he's a fool. He does nothing about what he's saying. But he can make it so, so convincing, so seductive. They can make their ignorance sound like brilliance. They can dazzle you with their knowledge. They can impress you with all of their novel teaching. But at the end of the day, they're ignorant fools who know nothing. Who know nothing. Peter says they're good for one thing, like animals, caught and killed. They're destined, as one author says, for the slaughterhouse of God's judgment. As we get to the end of the text, Peter makes that abundantly clear as well. You begin to hear people teach, and you compare it to the Word of God. And you see that what they're saying doesn't match here. Then you need to know the red lights need to be going off. Potentially I'm dealing with a blasphemous, ignorant fool who's parading himself as one with knowledge. 
And I need to watch out. Another one. They're shameless. Verse 13. Shameless. They count it a, a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. It's another, another just shot across the bow from Peter. What does he say about these people? Well, l- listen, you know human nature as well as I do. Most people, at least most rational people, at least make some attempt to hide their depravity. Isn't that fair to say? I mean, at least the, the most rational people will save their reveling for what time of day? Well, for nighttime, right? Why? Well, the cover of darkness can hide the depravity on the one hand. The other hand, most people have other things to do in the daytime. They go to work. They do productive things in the daytime. But not these guys. They have nothing productive to do. They wake up in the morning. And what do they do? They revel, he says. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They make no attempt to hide their sin and reveling in the darkness where others are doing the same thing. They are so consumed by and so fascinated with evil that they absolutely cannot wait till nighttime. They get up in the morning dreaming of how they can pursue their sinful stuff. And all throughout the day, that's what they're after. Broad daylight. They're shameless. They don't even try to hide it. The word for pleasure here is the word where we derive our English word hedonist. It's one who lives only for pleasure. And that's what drives these folks. They are, they are driven by pleasure. They wake up in the morning and they don't even wait till it's night. They don't even go do something productive and wait until it's nighttime on the weekend to go party with the wild people. They start it up in the morning and they do it all day long and they make really no, no attempt to hide it. The problem is they don't keep it to themselves. It says that they infect others, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. The false prophet isn't content to wreck his own life. He wants to wreck yours too. That's what Peter is saying. They're reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, it's quite possible here that the feasting he's talking about is what was commonly understood as the love feast of their day. If you understand in Peter's day, they didn't take the Lord's Supper the way you and I take the Lord's Supper. We come to church, we have a service, particularly for the Lord's Supper, and you understand the little plates and the crackers and the Welch's grape juice, and we do that. That's not how it worked in the first century. Typically, you would have a, you have a meal together, a full meal together within the body of Christ or within some portion of the body of Christ. And at the end of the meal, you would have the Lord's Supper together. It's called often a love feast. You hear the word love feast today, and you wonder, what in the world is that? But it made perfect sense in their day. And so Peter is, seems to be is saying here, when he says they're reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you, is that they're not content to keep their reveling in their own privacy of their own homes, that they're bringing this stuff into the church, into the context of meetings with other people in the church, even so brash and bold and arrogant as to do their reveling at the very table at which they are celebrating the atoning death of the Lord Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment when you think about shameless. They're bringing their shameful behavior right to the Lord's table and trying to induce others to pursue the same sort of stupid stuff. Jude 12, Jude, it's written this, 
They are hidden reefs. You know what a hidden reef is, right? If you're in the Navy, you know what a hidden reef is. You want to avoid them if you're in a boat, by all means. Under the surface, you can't see them, but you know when you hit them and they sink you. They're hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Look at that. That's gutsy. But that's what they are. Even while celebrating the atoning work of Christ, they do nothing but indulge themselves. There's no place too sacred. There's no moment that's off limits. There's shameless people who revel anywhere. That's a vivid description, isn't it? Let's get one more. Verse 14a, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. False prophets are driven by lust. It's one of the characteristics. They are driven by lust. This is a real simple text to make sense of. It says they have eyes full of adultery. Literally, the text says they have eyes full of an adulteress. They have eyes full of adulteress. What is Peter saying? He's saying that these men are so consumed with lust that they can't even look at a woman without sizing her up for their own sexual fantasies. That that's how depraved they are. That they can't even, that every woman is seen as a potential, as a potential target for their adultery. They are lustful people, driven by their lusts. You know, throughout the history of the church, wherever false prophets abound, there's always sexual promiscuity in their wake, for the most part. You see it all throughout the history of the church. I heard an African pastor preach not too terribly long ago at a conference, and he was talking about the problem of false teachers and false doctrine on the African continent. And he was talking about how they had taken African native religion and, and sort of smashed it together with Christian theology and made this sort of hybrid thing that they were teaching under the name of Christianity, but it wasn't Christianity at all. And the way this sort of thing played out was he spoke of a particular man of God who was a pastor of a Christian church who would tell the women within the congregation that they had a curse on them. And the way that they could get the curse off of them was to come see him because he was in touch with God. And if they, if they had uh, intimate relations with him, they would be free to the curse. And in his wake were many, many, many women who had believed that and fallen for that. Modern history of Christianity is littered with the stories of, of men who put on a show of godliness only to be exposed at some point as sexually immoral men who are living a double life. All throughout the history of the church, that's there. Throughout modern history, it's there from Jim Jones to Jim Baker to the Branch Davidians and David Koresh, to as recently as a few years ago, the leader of the National Association of Evangelicals, Ted Haggard. If you were around and you remember the stories from those days. Pastor of a Christian church, very large Christian church, leader of a massive organization of evangelicals, exposed for hiring and sleeping with prostitutes, one after the other. And, and those are just a few examples. Just a quick Google search will make you want to throw up because there's so much in the history of the church 
ancient and modern. Where false prophets are, promiscuity sexually is not far behind. It usually is around in the wake. By the way, the reason this kind of stuff is important to talk about this morning is the very same Ted Haggard has now planted a new church. And he's back in the pulpit preaching. And there's another crowd of people who are gathering and listening to the message. Listen, when a spiritual leader or a spiritual teacher in your world begins to show signs of of looseness in the area of sexuality, red lights need to be going off in your head. They need to be going off in your head. And if you see that in somebody that you're associated with as a spiritual leader, you need to not just ignore that. You need to say something to them. First and foremost, you need to lovingly confront them directly. Because in the best case scenario, it may be that you've just misinterpreted something that's quite innocent. And they need to be known. And you need to be under, it needs to be explained so that you can understand it and you don't have the question mark. It could be possible that you're dealing with a, a genuine religious leader who has allowed his morals to slide to the point where he's in danger of sinning in a gracious and awful way. And you may be God's mercy in his life to come alongside and bring a warning before it's too late. That's part of how God uses the body of Christ to hold one another accountable. Worst case scenario, it may be that you're dealing with a false prophet who's destroying all sorts of people behind the scenes. In either case, we can't turn the, uh, a blind eye. Well, our time is way, way beyond done. That gets us about halfway through the list characteristics but it's enough to to sober us isn't it it's enough to say man I I don't know that I want to read too much more of this can we get on to some happy stuff it's Mother's Day for heaven's sakes lunch will be a happy occasion I promise but this is serious friends what Peter has to say here is serious business because people's souls are at risk It's not just that we let them do their own thing so that they go destroy themselves and humiliate themselves and that's the end of it. But there are people all in their wake. People that you know. People that I know. People that we love. People that we care about. Who are in danger because they're following this kind of a shepherd. And this kind of thing should sober us. It should humble us. It should not make us arrogant people who are going around looking for some fault in everybody else. It should make us discerning people who use wisdom and the lens of the Word of God to evaluate what's happening around us, who are not gullible to believe the latest, flashiest, novel thing that's out there. There's a whole part of our Christian culture that will just flock to the latest, the newest, the flashiest, the novelist. We can't be that person. We need to be the people standing back saying, wait a minute, let's evaluate. Let's hear what's being said. Let's look at the life of the one who's saying it. And let's make sure that we're not entrusting our souls to someone who's going to destroy it. In order to do that, we need to be people of God's Word. We're going to find out later on that these kind of people, they pray, Peter says they pray on unstable people. What he means by that is they prey on people who don't know God's Word. The commitment of our hearts should be to God's Word, 
It should be to, to prayer. God, give me discernment as to who I entrust my soul to, to who I'm willing to listen to. And it should be the great humility to recognize that the sins that absolutely consume the false prophet have their roots in every one of our hearts. So it's important as we wake up in the morning to battle against those things. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's in fact quite sickening to read these words and to think about these things. To think about the the reality that there are people who parade as your ministers, people who parade around claiming to speak for you, who in fact are nothing but people who destroy the unstable, who take advantage of the unlearned, who take advantage of the desperate, who lead them along, who entice them with with flowery words and novel doctrines, promising them the world, but in the end doing nothing but destroying their soul. We pray, O Lord, that you would humble us as your people, that you would protect us from arrogance and pride, that you would protect us from blasphemous speech about things that we don't know anything about. You would humble us and make us selfless like your own self. We pray that you'd make us people of your word. We're busy people. We have busy lives. It's easy for life to just consume us and your word sit on the shelf. But Lord, we must know your word. If we don't know your truth, we'll never be able to understand how it contrasts with error. And we'll be susceptible to the counterfeits. Make us people of your book. Give us a great discernment by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might be able to tell the true from the false, that we might not be duped, that we might be a a tool that you use in the lives of those around us who we know and love. We might be able to rescue them from the influence of false teachers. Lord, if there are those who are with us this morning who don't know you, Lord Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, they are sitting ducks for these kinds of people. But worse than that, they're headed for an eternity apart from you. Because they've never repented of their sin and entrusted their lives to you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Savior of their lives. I pray that in these moments, these sobering moments, that you convict them of their sin. Help them to see their rebellion against you. Lord Jesus, draw them to yourself as the only hope for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. We pray for these things in your holy name. Amen.